How do we know if God is speaking to us? Uh, Does God still speak today? Can what God says be trusted? And uh, if God is a speaking God, does that prove that he really exists? Now, we're not going to get to the the depths of all of those questions by any means in these next few moments. But what I hope to do very quickly is to examine the simple question that's addressed in the psalm that we've just heard read. And that is how God speaks. If he does speak, then um, he must be there in some kind of form. It does prove his existence to some extent. He might, he might be there in some way or another. But I guess most of us would believe that here anyway. I mean, atheists actually, atheism is a tiny minority in this country and around the world. And only just over 10% of this country are actually true atheists, if you like. That is, they believe that there is nothing other or greater than us. There is nothing that controls and sustains all that we see around us. Only just over 10% in this country believe that. Of course, there are many other worldviews and understandings of who God is uh, and all the differing religions and the philosophies of this world. And I would encourage you, do go and investigate. Find out more about Buddhism. Find out more about Islam and so on. And critically evaluate them. Find out the evidence for them and what they're arguing and how they sit with you and how they sit with who you are and the people that you know and the world that you live around. Basically, I am so confident of the God revealed in the Bible that it doesn't worry me if you investigate elsewhere. I don't need to try and manipulate you tonight because if... If you knock down some of your presuppositions, some of those preconceived ideas that you have about God, the God of the Bible, and actually dare to investigate the truth, I honestly believe that you will be persuaded, as many people are here. I don't say that arrogantly because there's nothing that I can do to, if you like, persuade you, and there's nothing that I can do to merit myself before God. The liberating truth of the Christian message is is actually the fact that it's not about what you and I can do, but it's what has been done in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll find out more about that uh, later on, but let's leave that there. See, I don't come to you, therefore, arrogantly, but I can speak to you confidently, Why? Because God is a speaking God and he's made himself clear to you and I. And if you think you've ever met an arrogant Christian who brags about what God has done for them, can I suggest that you haven't met a Christian? You may have met an arrogant, deluded churchgoer, but not a Christian. Because Christians are generally humble before God, but confident in God uh, and in his son supremely, the Lord Jesus. That is what a Christian should be. Why? Because God has made himself clear, which is what we're going to see in this psalm uh, this evening. Now, big picture of this psalm, okay? Um, you've got King David, who's the leader of God's people in Israel at the time, about 600 BC. And he, what he's showing us is he's showing us how God reveals himself, how he communicates himself to us both generally in creation or in the world around us, but also specifically in what you have in your hands, the Bible. And what comes at the end is is David's response um, to what God reveals. And it's a great model for us to look at. 
Because if you hear God tonight speak, you will need to respond. Or you could respond by doing nothing, and that's a response in and of itself, isn't it? Or you could respond and recognise who God is, perhaps for the first time. So how much do you know about God? How much do you know about God? Oh, first point on that little outline I've put. We know something about God, just something about God from his creation, through his creation. See, what David is showing in these first few verses is that you can know, you and I can know something about God as we look around this world. And we can know something of his existence and also something of his power and his attributes. Look at verse 1 with me if you can. The heavens, he says, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Many of you know C.S. Lewis, one of the great authors of the last century. He wrote this of this psalm. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the whole book of psalms. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world. He said that because this is a song that would have been sung. Why does he say it that? Well, in, in literary terms, because this psalm is full, packed, of beautiful kind of parallelism. It was a common thing in Hebrew poetry. They, they made parallel after parallel. And what they did is they built them up into make this great, big, major point. How God speaks. So not only is it this a literary and, and musical masterpiece, if you like, it also speaks volumes about God and how he reveals himself. God and, and the world around us. God and his word, the Bible, to us. But also it speaks volumes about who you and I are before God. Now I guess many of us have been away or about to go away on holidays and that kind of stuff. I guess many of you represented here, I mean you're quite a wealthy bunch, you've been to some pretty beautiful places in this world I guess. And I guess, just think in your mind, what's the most beautiful place you've ever been to? It might be a a mountainscape, it might be beautiful lakes or a, a sea. Uh, a river. What, what's that beautiful place in your mind? Take yourself there for a moment. And I bet you've at that point just gone, wow. But I want to ask you, have you ever thought that those things in nature, that, that view that you've got, have you ever thought that they are communicating to you? They're saying something that you're supposed to understand. Well, you see, that, that is what David is saying here in this psalm. And he uses the sky to make the point. Have you seen that? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies he points us to. So he's saying, you know, the sun, the clouds, the moon, the, the universe, as we look up to it. He says, those things are communicating to you and I. They are communicating to us something about God. So we see, he says... They're communicating language. You see it in verse 1? The, the heavens declare. In verse 2, the skies proclaim its communication. Their voice goes out from, into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Now, obviously, if, we're, if you're skiing down a mountain or you're there surfing on a nice wave or you know, swimming in the sea or something, you probably are not going to hear the audible voice of God speaking to you. It's metaphorical, okay? It's kind of normal in poetry and all that kind of stuff. The point is, when we look at creation... We feel something, don't we? It's evocative. It stirs our emotions. Oh, we may decide it's just chaotic and and utterly meaningless. Around it's just a a meaningless kind of blob of matter. That's what you believe if you're an atheist. But David's saying here, if that's the case, you're missing the point of the world around us, the creation. David is saying the point of creation is that it speaks. 
And it speaks about his creator. Let me show you how it speaks from what David writes here. He says, firstly, it speaks abundantly. I say that from verse 2. He says, day after day, they pour forth speech, he says. I guess what he's saying there is, you can try and stop creation speaking about the creator God. But it's not going to work. It's like sticking your finger in a big crack in a huge dam. You might stop it for a millisecond, but it's going to burst through. It pours forth. He's also, he speaks abundantly, but also constantly. It says night after night. He's saying in every millisecond of this world's existence, the creation has night after night spoken about its creator God. Also, it speaks universally. Look at verse 4. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What's the point here? I think what he's saying in summary, is saying the creation is not a whisper. It's a megaphone to the whole world. And it pours forth the truth of its creator. And it does so abundantly, as is shown, constantly, universally. Well, that is how the world around us speaks about its creator. But what does it say about the creator? Look again at verse 1 if you can. The heavens declare, what about God? His glory. I don't know if you ever get sent those clips from friends on YouTube. Do you get those sent those? I got one of my favourite that a friend ever sent me. It was a, a picture of Laird Hamilton. A little clip of Laird Hamilton. Who is the greatest surfer of all time. He's about 45 now. And uh, what you get on this little clip, it's only about a minute and 15 uh, seconds long. And you get a, a close-up of Laird Hamilton to begin with on a surfboard. And you're thinking, he's going quite quick. That must be a big wave. Okay, and what the clip does for a minute and 15 seconds, all it does is this. It pans out. That's all it does. After 15 seconds, you're going, that's not a big wave. That's a huge wave. And after 30 seconds, you're going, I've never seen a wave like that in my life. Look at that man. Look what Louis took. After 45 seconds, you're going, you lot, coming up, look at this is the most ridiculous thing you'll ever see in your life. And after a minute, you're just in laughter. You cannot contain yourself. It is ridiculous. This wave is awesome. It is splendid. It is majestic. It is the biggest wave that anyone's ever surfed in their life. It comes every seven years to the north shores of, I think it's Maui or something like that. It's a set of waves called Jaws. And this one wave is 68 foot tall. And he surfs it. Now, majestic, glorious, splendid. They're the right kind of words, aren't they, to describe a wave like that. But can I ask you, what do you think the wave is saying? What do you think the wave is saying? I'll paraphrase, but I think it's saying something like this. If you think I'm glorious, majestic, splendid, what about the one who made me? And actually, Laird Hamilton, who's that mad surfer, he's utterly insane. I'm surprised he's not dead yet. But um, he would say the same thing. Because he believes that God is the creator and speaks through his creation. So creation speaks about the glory of God. Uh, Secondly, creation speaks about the power of God. We see that halfway through verse 1. The skies proclaim that the work, you see the power of God in the work of God in his hands. Where does all this come from? Is it just random chance? All this this, um, control that we live in? I actually believe in, uh, my parents have much more science background than me, but... I believe in some kind of 
bang, of some, some kind of point of origin. But the philosophical question, who's the prime mover? I mean, who made that galaxy that I've just found? I don't know if you've watched uh, Brian Cox on, you know, those, that series recently on BBC One. You know, who made that new galaxy that's just been found? The Sombrero Galaxy. It's trillions of light years away, billion times bigger than the Milky Way. Well, creation, David is saying here in this psalm, is saying, this testifies to God's power. You look around, you see his work, you see his power. Because he put it there for his glory. I do love it when you get those, the best academics in the world. And they're dumbfounded because their science and their maths takes them to a certain point, but they can't see beginning and they can't see end. And it's very humbling for them. Well, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm taking big steps here, but what the Bible tells us is that God spoke and these galaxies were formed. Creation also declares God's authority in putting it all there. And it's what we have at the end of verse 4, if you cast your eyes down to that. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Also in verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the the other. Now it is hidden from its heat. Now be clear, um, what David is doing, he's not making the sun, if you like, a demigod, which would have been the case for the Babylonians and the Egyptians of the time. But David is using that kind of language, that kind of poetic license, showing that God is the one who's put the sun in its place. He says he's pitched a tent for it. That's lovely language, isn't it? The sun just does what it's told, doesn't it, here? It comes and it goes on its circuit. Of course, they assumed at that point that the the earth was the centre of everything and the sun revolved around it. But what the big point is saying, it's all under the authority of God. On holiday last year, just to sum up these, uh, these little points here, I was, I was uh, cycling along this little cycle path beside um, the sea and a guy was sat on a sand dune above, above the cycle path, staring into the setting sun. And I, was, I rode past with my boys on their bikes and we got out of earshot and Barnaby, my eldest son, stopped and he said, what was that guy doing? Seemingly sort of, he seemed to be sort of worshipping the sun. And I said to him, I was out of earshot, and I said very graciously, I, yeah, I think he was being an idiot. And I, I then went to describe why I thought he was being an idiot. That is, I think what David is pointing out here is saying, don't stop at the sun. Your worship should not be, what you give value to and rely on should not stop at the creation. It goes beyond the creation to the creator of the creation, namely God. So creation speaks abundantly, constantly, universally about the glory, the power and the authority of God. See, all of that comes to the point, we know something about God in his creation. Just something. And as a result, Paul later in one of the New Testament books says, because of that something, we're without excuse. And this applies to all of us. When we meet God in our last day, the the judgment the Bible describes it, when there's a reckoning to be taken place, Uh, None of us will be able to say, oh, I didn't know you. I I didn't know that you were there. I didn't know I was supposed to worship you. Because on that judgment day, and and the judgment day is the only promise that hasn't been fulfilled in the Bible, and many, 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 many have already. The only one left to be fulfilled. Well, when that day comes, every star, every sea, and every planet will be witness against those excuses. Oh, I didn't know you, God. And every star will say, yes, you did. You saw me. 
See, if you're a Christian or maybe just someone visiting here, you're superbly welcome. Know this. When you stand before God on that day, there will be no excuse. I mean, if you have seen the, the, you know, the sky, there'll be no excuse. If you've seen a blade of grass, there'll be no excuse. If you've lived in that intricately, in, intricately balanced body of yours, there will be no excuse. And you'll be found wanting. You see, you have no excuse. But God is so amazing and he loves you so very much. Now, because even in that awesome, glorious power, authority, all that kind of stuff, he provides someone to save you from that judgment. He provides someone to excuse you. And his name is Jesus. We'll see why that is so in a moment. If you don't know Jesus personally, then please do find out more because he's amazing, as we'll see. And there is no better place to find out more. Come and ask questions. Come and sit on the seat you're sat in right now, next week. Come and find out more. To finish this session, just take in your minds. Go back to that place which you remember, that great place in the world that wowed you. Ask yourself, what kind of God creates that kind of beauty? And how does that make you feel? Well, when I think about what I'm thinking about, it makes me feel very small. You know that kind of feeling? As you watch a burning sun go down on the, you know, over an ocean, it makes you feel tiny, doesn't it? It makes you realise that you're not the biggest thing out there, that the world doesn't revolve around you, even when you're in the most selfish moments you think that. And you see God's creation, and you see God, and you're in awe of him, perhaps. And realise you're not the centre of the universe. That's a good place to be. Get out there and have a look, and consider the God behind the creation. So we know something of God through his creation, that God is great, abundant, glorious, and we're very small. Secondly, we know God through his word. This goes from verse 7 onwards. Have a look at that. And do you see the difference here? You see, we've got all the power and the majesty of God's creation. And we know just something of God because of that. But we can truly, personally, intimately know God through his special revelation. That is through his word. The Bible. See, creation is utterly limited in comparison to what you have in your hands right now. And David makes this clear through a number of different kind of changes in both what he writes and how he writes. Do you see them? There's a shift from metaphor here to reality. So where there were voices, now there are kind of laws, statutes, precepts, commands, ordinances, real words. God is now speaking and it's precise and it's clear. Also notice creation reveals God to our senses. It's kind of, you get a, you know, you see that big sort of landscape and your eyes and your ears are just bombarded, aren't they? But you see, the Bible, it goes deeper. Because God reveals himself to our hearts and our minds. So we see in verse 7, it revives the soul. The Bible makes us wise. It gives joy to our heart. See, creation might overwhelm you, you know, in your eyes and your senses. You might just go, wow. But that just lasts seconds. Oh, 
The word of God, the Bible goes deeper because it transforms. But its effect is eternal. Notice also the change in the way that God is addressed. In those first six verses, God is just addressed once. And you see it's the term God there in verse 1. And, and that, that comes from a Hebrew word, which is El, basically, in, in, in that language. And David is saying God here is a kind of general God term. Uh, it's actually a faceless God, is kind of the original. But in verse 7, you see how it changes, how he refers to God here. <clears throat> David now speaks of God a number of times, but he's now using a name for God, and it's Lord. Do you see that there in capitals? Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals there, which is his covenant name, his relationship name, which is Yahweh in the Hebrew. So do you see what David's doing there, the writer? In the first section, you've got God is this majestic but faceless El, God. But now, if he's saying, if you want to know God, if you want to have relationship with God, he's saying, well, creation is not good enough. The world around you is not good enough. You have no excuse because of what you see in creation, but you should want to look further, and the place to look is right in your hands now. Because that is where you'll find the covenant God, the God who wants relationship with you. So what do we know about the Lord from his word? There's so much here, we're going to scoot through things very quickly. Firstly, notice that all the parts of the Bible kind of work together. You see there's law, the statutes, the precepts, commands. They're, they're written in a way to say that they come together as a whole to serve reviving the soul, making wise the simple, giving light to blind eyes and all that kind of stuff. That is what he's saying. Everything you've got in your hands in the Bible is telling you who God is and how you can relate to him. But I suppose there's a big jump there because do you actually believe these words? Do you think that scripture, as it says, is more precious than gold? If I had a gold nugget in my hand and a Bible here and you could only choose one, which one would you choose? I would ask you, please, it, I would love you to just look at the evidence. Ask someone here, come and speak to me, both historically, archaeologically. Many of us here who have looked at the evidence have been compelled. I would say, do your intelligence some justice. Ask the questions. Find out if this is more precious than gold. Sweeter than honey. Why bother? Well, what does the Bible do? Let me get, take you through a couple of things. The Bible instructs, you see that in verse 7. It's trustworthy, making wise the simple. That is, the Bible tells you who God is and who we are in relation to God. I, I guess in a pro, kind of pluralistic world that we live in, that relativistic postmodern society that we'll, you know, we're all told about, that makes things clear. Because the Bible tells you who God is and who you are in comparison to him. It brings clarity. That's sweeter than honey. The Bible instructs, but it also enlivens. We see it revives the soul. It brings joy to the heart. In keeping them, it says, it's great reward in verse 11. The reward, though, is not cash. And too many churches around this world will teach that. Surely the context here points us to the reward being the reviving of the soul. The reward being that deep-seated joy in our hearts. I don't, know you about, I don't know about you at the moment. How do you feel? In, in and of yourself, but also in, 
with any relationship that you have with God or no relationship you have with God? How do you deal with that, that coldness that you might feel in your heart at the moment? In and of yourself, but also just a coldness toward God. I don't want anything to do with him. Can I let you just gently encourage you? Not in a manipulative way, just, just start reading. I'll point you in the right direction where to look. But start reading, have a look. I was reading of a, a very famous English cricketer, cricketer called C.T. Studd. I was reading his biography recently. He's probably the most famous cricketer, English captain of all time, really. Um, much more famous than Broad and all those kind of characters now. Although they're doing quite well, aren't they? C.T. Stubb was an aristocrat, um, educated at Eton and then Cambridge. But in 1885, in February 1885, he and six other men took off from their very, very luxurious lives in this country and they went to China to tell other people about Jesus from the Bible. C.T. Stubb at that point was the height of his cricketing career. He was England captain, he was on the front of the Times every week. He was a pin-up boy, if you like, of the cricket team. And he was extraordinarily wealthy. But he was a million miles from God, he would say, in his own estimations. But on one day, coming back from the Oval and winning a, a, a test against the, um, the Australians, yes, um, there he was, in his little carriage with a horse-drawn uh, guy uh, leading him around, who's feeling very, very away from God, distant from God, wasn't sure about God at all. But what did he do? He went into his jacket pocket and he found his little Bible. And with a little candle in his horse-drawn cart, he began to read. And he was so, if you like, enlivened by it. It brought joy to his heart. He began to realise who he was in comparison to the great creator God. And he loved it so much that he got his driver to carry on driving round London so he wouldn't be disturbed in his reading of the, of the Bible. I do that on the circle line. It's very useful. <laughs> the Bible enlivens, brings joy to the heart. But lastly, the Bible also warns. By them your servant is warned, verse 11 says. See, when you read the Bible, there is an appropriate godly fear to have, as in verse 9. And we are to be warned if we are ignoring God. Winston Churchill, when he was watching the world hurtle towards World War II, would um, sing this poem to himself. He said, Who is in charge of the clattering train, the axles creak and the coupling strain? And the pace is hot and the end is near, and sleep hath deadened the driver's ear. And the warnings flash through the night in vain, for death is in charge of the clattering train. The Bible warns us if we're ignoring God. And I hope that the warnings that you hear are not in vain. As Churchill sang, both in your life and in mine. See, if we ignore God, whether in his creation or as we clearly see him through his word, the Bible, he will one day ignore us eternally. So we know God through his word, it instructs, it enlivens, it warns. And thirdly and lastly, and very, very briefly, we respond to God with fear and humble trust. These last few verses, let me refresh you of them. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless. Innocent of great transgression, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So when God is revealed to us in his creation, and especially in his word, the Bible, there is an appropriate response, and that's what David models here for us. 
David responds, how? Well, he becomes acutely aware, doesn't he, of his own rebellion against God. He sees God in his, all his majesty and in his word clearly. And he says, I need to do something. I need to, if you like, confess. And he does that. He opens up his heart before God. And he shows God I, I, all the errors of his life. You see in verse 12, the errors, we all make them, don't we? Not in our own standards, but before a perfect God, we make many. Uh, secondly, we see he declares his hidden faults, those underlying rebellions that only you know about. Those habitual sins, the Bible calls them, doesn't it? Verse 13, he says willful sins. He con- confesses those, those things that he's willfully decided to do, knowing God would dis- disapprove. Well, when we're confronted with God and his word, we're taken to the core of our being. And what the Bible does, amazingly, it just exposes who we are in comparison to creator God and covenant Lord. We do try and hide it, though, don't we? Even from ourselves. And we justify our behavior, our thinking. We deceive ourselves. We even delude ourselves to say, oh, it doesn't matter if we rebel against God. He won't mind in the end, will he? But the word of God cuts through, exposes us, and it makes the comparison between the creator and the created. And David prays there, doesn't he, that his errors, his hidden and willful sins, what does he say? May they not rule over me. He's simply confessing, he's saying, I'm going to get them out before you, God. He's turning his back on doing things his way. He's turning his back on ignoring God's words through the Bible. And he's turning to God. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Rob, do you want to go to him? It's what the Bible calls repentance. And what happens when we do that? When we turn? Well, in, the, in our times now, as we see in his word... It is Jesus, the Christ, the Saviour, who will make us blameless, as David prayed, innocent of great transgression. See, David is a wonderful example of someone who pretty amazingly sinned, like big, big stuff. He drifted from God, but instead of running from God, which is his natural inclination, he draws near to God. And he knows that he deserves judgment, but he responds coming back to God. Who has been revealed in his word. And he comes with fear and humble trust. He trusts that he's going to be forgiven. You see that there. He asks for help. Look at verse 14 at the end. He asks for help from the rock and the redeemer. That is the rock, the the stable help and the redeemer. The one who can save. And that rock and redeemer we know has been provided and given in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus lived, you see, that perfect life that we cannot live. And he died on a cross. And when he did, he took the punishment or judgment that our rebellion before God deserves. He's the redeemer. Why? Because he buys the freedom that we do not enjoy with God because of our rebellion. And he buys it with his perfect life. And he can buy your freedom too. Or you can ignore God. Or you can listen. And respond. How do you respond? Well like David you need to admit. That you have failed God. You've rebelled against him. You need to turn to him. Repent and say sorry. 
And then you need to trust who? The rock. Christ. Jesus. And the Redeemer. The one who can save you for an eternity with God in heaven. See, we know something of God in his creation. So you've got no excuse. You know God through his word, the Bible. There's clarity. So therefore, you need to respond with fear and humble trust. David starts his psalm with this loud megaphone to the whole world. He then moves to speak to his people through his word. And it's brilliant. He finishes with just one single individual praying on his knees before God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. What an end. It's almost as if God is sort of saying you've got the sun and the moon and the universe around you. And it's shouting down to you in a kind of a megaphone kind of way. And then God says, look, shh, at the end. Quiet. One of my children are praying. And Why don't you think about doing that tonight? Turn to that rock and redeemer. Jesus, because God speaks and he has made him clear in his word, the Bible. Come and find out more about him because he is the only way to enjoy an eternity with that perfect, that awesome, that majestic creator and covenant Lord who longs to have relationship with you and me. Let's pray as we close. Maybe just a moment of quiet, nothing spooky about that. Just why don't you consider how you are going to respond to the God who's revealed himself in his creation and supremely in his word and ultimately in his son Jesus. So I pray as we sung earlier, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. These are truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. Heavenly Father, wherever we are at right now, please open our eyes. Help us grasp who you are, how big and majestic you are, and how much you love us by the fact that you have sent your Son to restore relationship to you. It is only through Jesus, the rock and redeemer, that we can be with you for eternity. Help us put our trust in him and him alone. Amen. Let me just mention a couple of things to finish. If you want to start reading that enlivening word of God, there's no better place to turn than to probably Mark's Gospel. If you haven't got a Bible at home, in an easy-to-read translation. There's a couple of copies on the little table at the back. If you want to know just the basic gospel message that Christ Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place and how you respond, there's a little booklet at the back that says Two Ways to Live, The Choice You Face. Why don't you take a copy of that? It's free. Just take it for free. No problem at all. And come and ask questions. So the person that, you know, that you've come with will come and ask questions of me. That would be great. Now. Well, yeah, if you're seeing our last one again, I'll have to